Hi, I'm Justin Rosso. Welcome to this episode of the Next Step Podcast, where we help you take a next step. This is episode 13 of season four, where we've been doing a delight book reading. Delight, discipleship is the adventure of loving and being loved. Uh, so good to have you with us again tonight. So we've got a couple of updates. Uh, thank you for all those of you who went out and purchased a copy of this Jesus at the Center of My Messy Life. Uh, I saw about 30 copies get sold over the weekend, and you were a part of that. So th thanks for doing that. I really appreciate it. It's going to be a, a great blessing, I think, uh, this Christmas season even, as a devotion book. And good to see all the authors kind of getting excited about that as well. Uh, Naomi goes in tomorrow for her one-week checkup on her wisdom teeth. She's showing a little bruising, but the swelling's gone down, and she didn't take any pain medication today at all. So that's really good news. Thanks for all of you for your thoughts and for keeping Naomi in your prayers. Uh, Aunt Elva. Hi, Aunt Elva. Aunt Elva got an infection after her hip surgery and at 96 is struggling a little bit to, to recover from that. She kind of wasn't herself for a couple of days, but seems to be getting back to it. And I know she needs, uh, she needs endurance now to keep going on and having a will to get better. So tonight, Aunt Elva, we're dedicating this delight book reading to you. It's about God's delight but it's also about our suffering and Jesus' suffering and how God's will could be God's good pleasure if it allows suffering. That's a part of what we're reading tonight. I'm beginning on page 153. This is the about the second half or so of chapter 9 where we'll be reading tonight. Hey, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being with us. This first section we're beginning with on page 153 is Jesus and God's delight. Did I mention I can't wait for chapter 10 on God's work? Here's a little appetizer. Spoiler alert. The Spirit is working in you to shape you, mold you, and empower you to delight in God's delight and to joyfully engage the work of the kingdom, to delight in God's will and walk in God's ways. As the Master designed, this sculptor spirit is shaping you towards... Well, I'm sorry... And the master design this sculptor spirit is shaping you towards is, quite simply, Jesus. Anointed with the Spirit, Jesus fulfills his mission to do God's will slash delight in the power of the Spirit and pours out that same Spirit on those who follow him. The Spirit, who fills Jesus with the joy of doing God's delight, now dwells within you. You can see the joy of Jesus clearly connected to the Spirit's presence and the will-slash-delight of the Father in Luke chapter 10. Jesus sent 72 hand-chosen followers out in pairs to prepare people for his imminent arrival. When these 72 return with great joy, woohoo, joyful delight, because of their success, Jesus instructs them to have joyful delight not in what they've accomplished, but in the fact that their names are entered into the roles of the kingdom. In both cases, Jesus and the disciples use the joyful delight word we've gotten to know in Greek. Kara, like caress, but with an ah. Kara, joy, delight, gladness as a result of grace. Then the Spirit fills Jesus with delight. At that time, Jesus, full of joy, joyful delight, woohoo! through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you 
were pleased to do. Thoughtful delight. Wow. At the beginning of this verse, the joyful delight of Jesus is described with the word we haven't met yet, agaliao. Uh, if you said, ah, golly, and then added an ao at the end, uh, you wouldn't exactly be speaking Greek, but, but you'd be close. Agaliao, to jump for joy, delight greatly. This word is a jump up and spin around woohoo word, much like the Hebrew gil, sounds like feel, we met back in chapter 1. He will exalt gil over you with loud singing. That's Zephaniah 3.17. Jesus is definitely experiencing joyful delight in the Spirit. Just as the Father was well pleased, oidokeo, with the Son in his, at his baptism, the Father now takes thoughtful delight, in revealing the kingdom to little children. And that thoughtful delight makes Jesus jump up and spin around and go woohoo in the spirit. In these few short verses, we have three different Greek words for delight. Kara, agaliao, and oidokeo. And add our English translation into the mix and you get even more layers. Where the NIV has Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, the ESV translates, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said. Uh, okay, maybe that one's not so bad. The NIV just took the verb to rejoice and made it a noun, joy. They must have thought it sounded more natural that way. But the next one is significant. Where the NIV translates, yes, Father, for that is what you were pleased to do, the ESV puts the same Greek word into English like this. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, wait a minute. The Greek word for will we've been working with is thelema and translates the Hebrew kephets, desirable delight. Yes, please. But this is oidokeo, thoughtful delight. Wow. Suddenly being translated as gracious will. What gives? You might not be bothered by this. I understand. But I'm trying to build a coherent system of how the Bible talks about delight and how we typically understand or misunderstand that concept. And those words and meanings are not easy to nail down. Translating from Hebrew to Greek or Greek to English or Hebrew to English, the concepts and vocabulary words get somewhat slippery sometimes, let alone making nouns verbs or verbs nouns. I think this verse just goes to show that you can't plug your translator machine into a mathematical equation or line up your super Hebrew Greek English decoder ring to make a magic translation pop out the other end. Context, nuance, changing usage over time, and typical patterns for different authors and different translators all play significant roles in getting the meaning across the lexical divides of history and culture. I also think we're dealing with a very natural phenomenon we talked about in the very beginning of our discussion of delight. The biblical word cloud for delight is complex and multifaceted and does not overlap exactly with the English word cloud for delight, let alone with your own personal experience with the concept. But don't throw up your hands or throw in the towel just yet. Despite the differences, some things are actually really clear. Delight, as a category of experience in the Bible, is rich enough to include joyful, thoughtful, playful, delicious, and desirable delight. And God's will is directly related to God's 
delight. So the Spirit of Jesus, so the Spirit fills Jesus with joyful delight. Woohoo! With the result that Jesus aligns himself with the delight slash will slash good pleasure of the Father. Now, as little children to whom the secrets of the kingdom have been revealed according to the thoughtful delight, wow, of the Father, you also are filled with the same Spirit who fills Jesus. The result? The Spirit also fills you with a joyful delight in the delight of the Father. You delight in God's will and walk in God's ways to the glory of God's holy name. Jesus expects something like that Spirit-led delight to happen. Jesus tells his disciples on Monday, Thursday, Kara Thursday, that they will put themselves under the words of the Father and do the same kind of work Jesus himself has been doing. Why? Because Jesus will ask the Father to send the Spirit. The Spirit will enable the followers of Jesus to do the work of Jesus. Part of the work of Jesus is saying woohoo to the things that make the Father go wow. I speak just as the Father taught me, Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Or again, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Or again, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Or again, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. It's from John 8 and John 14. Jesus is hearing the Father and doing the delight of the Father in love. That same hearing and doing in love is made possible by the presence of the Spirit in you. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. That's also from John 14. Filled with the spirit, Jesus delights in the Father's will and walks in the Father's ways. Filled with the spirit, so do you. Filled with the spirit, you actually get to say woohoo to the things that make the Father go wow. You get to delight in the Father's delight. I can almost sense you beginning to believe, or at least wanting to believe, that the Spirit who fills you can also enable you to delight in God's will and maybe even walk in God's ways. I can almost feel your heart opening up or wanting to open up to the presence of the Spirit, the woohoo of the Son, and the wow of the Father. And I think I have an idea of what, what might be holding you back at least a little. Keeping you from jumping for joy. Throwing water on the ember that had just begun to catch fire. Or maybe it's just me. I want so badly to believe and live out this joyful delight that is a gift from the Spirit and connects me both to Jesus and to the Father I want so badly for you to see delight as a core attribute and defining characteristic of any Jesus follower. I want so badly for delight to have meaning in my own personal everyday life. And then, 
cold, hard reality strikes. And I'm back to dealing with loss and failure and disappointment and fear and sin and shame. In the cold, hard, real world, God's will seems distant and calculating. God's will works behind a divine curtain in a way I never get to see or understand. God's will allows suffering. Most of it worse than mine, but all of it terrible. And if suffering fits into God's will, then it seems like delight just can't. Do you see how that thought, that reality, can stifle delight? I imagine I can sense you just beginning to open up to the possibility of delight in your life as a follower of Jesus, and I imagine that timid opening to delight is closed down quickly by the reality of suffering. I want to lean into that reality because the kind of delight Jesus experienced, the kind of delight Jesus wants you to have is strong enough and deep enough and big enough to hold even suffering in the hands of faith before the throne of grace. For anyone filled with the Spirit, like Jesus, like you, suffering is safely held under the umbrella of God's delight. The next section is called Suffering, Obedience, and Jesus. You can see the struggle between God's delight and suffering even in the life of Jesus, not only in the cross, but also in his struggle in the wilderness and in the garden. As soon as Jesus receives the guiding presence of the Spirit and the Father's verdict of delight, Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Still dripping wet from his baptism, Jesus heads to the desert region, a place of testing and temptation. And if his baptism in the Jordan establishes this Jesus as God's Son, in whom the Father delights, wow, and in whom the Spirit dwells, then the temptation in the wilderness challenges what it means to be God's Son. If you are the Son of God, the tempter whispers, Three times Satan invites Jesus to alleviate or avoid his own suffering because Jesus is the Son. Satan tries to redefine sonship to mean getting what you want, when you want it. Jesus, on the other hand, holds to a core identity marker of the beloved Son. Obedience. There's another one of those Bible vocabulary words I think we just don't have a good handle on. We send pets to obedience school. How robust can our concept of obedience really be? As if God said, sit, and Jesus said, woof. Of course, our concept of obeying it's, extends beyond pets to things like obeying your parents or obeying the law. But I think what you and I typically mean by obeying misrepresents what the Bible means by hearing and holding on to God's will and God's delight. You see, the Greek word for obey combines the action of hearing and holding on to tightly, and in that sense, doing or putting into practice. To obey is first to hear and then to put yourself under what you have heard and hold on to it for dear life. 
I think that's one reason Jesus, filled with the Spirit, quotes Scripture in the face of temptation. Jesus hears and holds on to God's Word. Three times Satan says, if you are the Son of God, and let's say for the sake of argument you are, then define sonship by getting what you want. Three times Jesus responds, it is written. Jesus hears the Father and, filled with the Spirit, holds on to what the Father has said. Jesus submits his own actions to the words of the Father. Jesus obeys. And in so doing, Jesus shows what it really means to be the beloved, obedient Son. Just as God's people were tempted in the wilderness, God's Son goes into the wilderness to be tempted. Just as Adam and Eve had an opportunity to hear and hold on to God's word in the garden, so Jesus, the new Adam, goes into the garden to do the will of the Father and thereby crush the serpent's head. Where we failed to be faithful, Jesus proves true. The book of Hebrews says, Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. I'm sorry, but when I read that, it seems to me like we've gone even beyond doggy obedience school. This feels like the dog is being beaten with a stick until it learns how to behave. I always appreciated the office sign, beatings will continue until morale improves. Of course, that can't be right, but doesn't learning obedience through suffering sound awful? How dare we suggest we have a God of love if God does something like that? A closer look at the Garden of Gethsemane only makes it worse. Jesus, in utter anguish, prays three times, like the threefold temptation in the wilderness, that the cup of suffering would be removed. If there is any other way, he prays, I choose that one. And then God's will and human suffering come head to head. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. That's the version in Mark 14, 36. Jesus, as son, seems to think the Father could do something different, but it is God's will for Jesus to go to the cross. We're back to God's will being hard, cold, calculating, almost Vulcan, and our exploration of delight will find things getting worse before they get better. The word for will here is the same Greek word used to translate desirable delight in the Old Testament. In this case, if you divorce God's will from God's delight, the text actually seems to make more sense. But the cost of that slate of hand is to create a concept of God's will that can be cold and distant and calculating and not delightful at all. Thankfully, I don't think the biblical witness allows us to go there. While the Greek word for will might not overlap completely with the Hebrew for desirable delight, both the Greek thelema and the Hebrew kephets shade the concept of will towards delight. And that's a problem, at least in Gethsemane and at the cross. Listen to what Isaiah says about the suffering servant of Yahweh, the chosen and anointed one. Yet it was the Lord's will 
Kafet's desirable delight to crush him and cause him to suffer as the and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord, Kephet's desirable delight, will prosper in his hand. Yep, that's Kephet's. The Hebrew word for desire or pleasure, something I set my will on because it brings me delight. The King James Version makes the tension even clearer. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Somehow the suffering and death of Jesus brings God pleasure. That offends me. That seems to make the father a sadist or the son a masochist or both. That goes against what I've been taught about love and family, let alone about good and evil. If the father can take pleasure, can desire, can find delight in the suffering of the son, I'm not sure I want that father after all. In fact, some people have rejected the message of scripture precisely because the cross can be seen as a form of divine parental abuse, and rejecting parental abuse seems to require rejecting the God of the Bible. And I kind of get it. The existence of suffering in general, let alone the will of the Father for the suffering of the Son, is enough to make atheists out of true believers. So we need a way of thinking about suffering and sonship and obedience and God's will that helps us see how and why it makes sense to say God delights in the suffering and death of Jesus. You could chalk it up to God's will being cold and abstract beyond our understanding, but then you're left with God's will devoid of delight, and that's not how the Bible talks. So let's lean into suffering and God's will because on the other side is a clearer understanding of God's delight. First, Let's go back to that problematic text in Isaiah 53. This is the suffering servant who will be wounded for our transgressions and pierced for our iniquities. This is the servant of Yahweh on whom God will place our sins so that our sins can be removed from us. Notice that when the text talks about God's desirable delight in the death of this suffering servant, the life of the suffering servant is also right there in view. In fact, even though he becomes a sacrifice for the sins in his death, he will still see the light of life. What's more, the desirable delight of God will prosper in his hand even after the sacrifice has been made. Yet it was the Lord's will, desirable delight, to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord, the desirable delight of the Lord, will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. That's Isaiah 53, 10-11. According to Isaiah, the thing that pleases the Father is not the suffering and death of the Son in isolation. Rather, the obedient suffering, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of the Son, and all that brings about, 
is the true desirable delight of the Father. After the bruising and crushing and dying comes the light of life. After the offering is complete, the living Son will accomplish the delight of the Father. Jesus' suffering and death are central to the story of salvation, but they are never alone in the story of salvation. Allow me to say that again. Jesus' suffering and death are central to the story of salvation, but they are never alone in the story of salvation. I think we're more faithful to Scripture if we imagine this as a single event, as the obedient suffering and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection for the purpose of justifying sinners and accomplishing God's delight. That's what the Father delights in. Not the suffering of the Son in isolation, but the obedience of the Son unto death for the purpose of bringing God's loved but estranged children back home forever. Understanding death-slash-resurrection as a single event helps me understand how the Father can bear to let the Son go to the cross, let alone delight in what's taking place. Uh, Quick aside, I think that's what I always misunderstood about Abraham and Isaac. On the surface, it looks like a father willing to take the knife to his son because God said so. What kind of faith is that? What kind of God is that? No, thank you. But then you realize God has made an explicit promise about this Isaac, who had been miraculously born when both mom and dad were not physically capable of having kids anymore. God said Abraham's offspring would come from this son of promise. So when Abraham obeys God and goes to sacrifice the son whom he loves, Abraham is hearing and holding on to, that is, obeying, the promise as well as the command. As the book of Hebrews puts it, Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. The story makes a different kind of sense if you hold promise, sacrifice, death, and resurrection together as a single event. What was true of that son of promise is also true of Jesus, the son of promise. Jesus hears and holds on to both the promise and the command. According to Jesus, the definition of being the beloved son is not using your power or status to your own advantage. Rather, being the son means being obedient hearing and holding on to the delight of the Father. Read in that light, the obedience of the Son unto death makes even more sense. Or maybe we should call it the Son's hearing and holding on to the delight of the Father unto death and resurrection. Go back to Hebrews 5 with that thought in mind. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. In Gethsemane, the son prays fervently to the father who can and who will save him from death. Because Jesus submitted himself to the will slash delight of the Father, that is, 
because Jesus heard and held on to or obeyed God's delight, the Father in turn heard and answered his prayers. He was heard because of his reverent submission. The suffering and death of the suffering servant is not the end. The vindicated servant will see the light of life, and the delight of God will prosper in his hands. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered, because hearing and holding on to God's delight is not a theoretical thing, but something that gets lived out in real life. God, who knew at least theoretically how much Abraham trusted the promise, could say only after Abraham raised the knife, Now I know that you fear God, that you submit yourself to hear and hold on to God's promise and command. In the same way, the son was theoretically committed to the father's plan for salvation, but going through with it showed that Jesus held on to the father's word of promise and command. Jesus obeyed, and in that hearing and holding on to, was brought to a place of fulfillment or completion as God's beloved son. That's what the word perfect means in Greek, made complete or brought to fulfillment. Delighting in God's will, delight, means walking God's ways. Obeying God's will slash delight means hearing and putting yourself under the commands and promises that stem from God's delight and then holding on to those promises in real life. God's delight encompasses even the suffering and death of Jesus, but God does not delight in suffering and death of and by themselves. Rather, God delights in the obedient suffering and sacrificial death and victorious resurrection for the purpose of justifying sinners and accomplishing God's delight of Jesus. The next section is called Suffering, Obedience, and you. And we're going to have to get to that one tomorrow night. Oh, I don't want to stop, but it's already 7.32, and I think I think we had better because we're not going to get through that quickly. Uh, here's a spoiler alert. The section Suffering, Obedience, and Jesus is going to inform the section Suffering, Obedience, and You. So if you, like my great aunt Elva, needs uh, a little endurance tonight, hang in there. God does not delight in your suffering by itself. God delights in the fact that you belong to him and that his delight is big enough and and complete enough to hold your suffering in his presence and know he's got a bigger picture in mind. I'll be glad, excited, <laughs> and full of delight to talk to you more about that tomorrow night. But for tonight, I'll say good night and see you next time at Next Step Press.